Morning, everyone. Um, today I'm going to talk on Psalm 103, which is a bit of a long psalm. But don't worry, we're not going to do all of it. Um, so, uh, but I did want to have the whole psalm read so it's, we have the context. So let's pray. Lord, um, we come before you and... We ask, Lord, that uh, you open our hearts, open our minds, Lord, and Lord, I pray that you put your words on my lips, Lord, so that um, we don't leave this place unchanged. Because uh, you, you, you say that your word will not return void. So, thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I think I've got to clean my glasses on. That's what shirts are for. All right, in his um, runaway bestseller for the business community, The One Minute Manager, author Ken Blanchard recommends that leaders develop the practice of one minute praising if and when they catch, catch one of their employees doing something right, he suggests that they praise them there and then on the spot. We're all used to bosses who catch us doing something wrong. And how rare it is to be praised for something we do well. So Blanchard's idea is to catch them doing something right, give them a one minute praise in there on the spot. He says, don't wait because waiting takes away the impact. Tell them right then, right there, how much you appreciate the good job they're doing. Now this is a good idea, but it's actually more difficult than it appears. Most of us are much better at crit criticism than praise. We're much better at one minute blaming than we are one minute praising. Many of us would do well to put this into practice this week catch someone doing something right and praise them on the spot. It, it could rev revolutionize your marriage. It could change the way that you see your children and relate to your children. And it could encourage those who report to you at work and just deepen your friendships. It would also make you much nicer to be around. But it does need to be intentional, and that's, that's the key. That's the thing that most of us find difficult, because our natural default position is not to be that positive. And it also applies very much to our relationship with God. Many of us are better at complaining, and it's not just us. The children of Israel in the wilderness in Numbers 10 through 13 complained against the Lord after, he'd, after all that he had done for them, after the great miracle of parting the Red Sea for them. They were griping and complaining and moaning and groaning. God sent them manna in the desert, and they didn't like it. They missed the good food that they'd had back in Egypt. If you remember, they were talking about the leeks and all that stuff. In Egypt, 
they were slaves, but at that point in the desert, they were willing to trade their freedom for a better menu. So God sent quail until they choked on it. They were unhappy people, those Israelites. We wonder, how could they be so short-sighted after all God had done for them? And had shown them. But we're just like them, and they're just like us. Sometimes, we need to give ourselves a good talking to, and that's what Psalm 103 is all about. It's a prayer by which David takes his own soul and talks to it and reminds himself to bless the Lord and forget not all his benefits or all that he'd, the Lord had done for him. David is intentional in how he commits to praise God. It happens through an inward dialogue. He commands his soul to praise the Lord. How often do we come to church and just don't feel like praising God? We wait to see if we can be swept up in something without any effort. And if we're not, we complain a bit that it was because we didn't like the music or the preaching or the service was too long or it wasn't long enough or someone next to us distracted us or the seats are too hard or the whole thing just got too weird. Well, 1 Peter 2 reminds us that we are a peculiar people. We need to be more like David and speak directly and forcefully to our own hearts rather than listen to them complain. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And that's an order. Let's get real for a minute. It's not just at church that this applies to. When was the last time you praised God at home or at work or in the park? or at the bus stop. I wonder how many of us could give God a one-minute praising for all his blessings instead of telling the Lord what we want him to do for us. Now, I know some of you don't have this problem and you pray and praise God with thanksgiving all the time. And there actually are people here who do that, and I know who they are because I'm always amazed. Um, but for the rest of us Israelites, we need, to do, we need a good dose of Psalm 103 to wash out that complaining spirit and replace it with a heart of gratitude to the Lord. Amen? All right. I love saying amen in church. <laughs> Can I challenge you? Can I? Everyone except Jono, because Jono said no. <laughs> all right here's what i suggest let's all commit to praising god for at least a minute every morning this week coming and let's see how it impacts the week does that sound like a good idea i think so now i know like we'll get up in the morning and go, i just don't have time i've got to do so much but you know you can praise god for a minute while you're buttering your toast while you're you know having a shower there's always time to praise God. We just have to be intentional about it. We just have to speak to our soul and say, praise God, that's an order. Psalm 103. Now, 
Let's talk about that. Some people consider this the greatest of all psalms. Spurgeon, the great theologian, called it a Bible within itself. And he said it contains too much for a thousand pens to write. We can look at the outline of it um, this way. Verses 1 through 5 is personal. David reviews the mercy of God to him. 6 through 18 is national. David reviews the mercy of God to Israel. And 19 through 22 is universal. David calls all created beings to praise the Lord. As we just saw, David begins by calling us to wholehearted, intentional praise of God. Let all that is within me praise his holy name and forget not his benefits. Some translations say, forget not what he has done for me. In Psalm 103, we see an intentional act of biblical meditation which is different from the popular notion of what meditation is and should not be confused with it. What we see described on TV and in movies and in popular culture in general as meditation derives from Eastern religions such as Buddhism and Hinduism. And they emphasize relaxation techniques with the goal of emptying the mind. Biblical meditation is not like that. It does the opposite. By focusing and dwelling on God's word to fill us up, to fill our minds with its truth. It's a completely different thing. So using thought and memory to set our hearts on fire for the Lord. It looks a little bit like this. We must think before we thank. We must ponder before we praise. We must remember before we rejoice. I'll say that again. We must think before we thank, ponder before we praise, remember before we rejoice. David dwells on the truth here that God forgives sins and eventually will remove all suffering and disease. How much of our fear, anxiety, anger, and discouragement is due to forgetting these truths? Forgetting the benefits that God gives us in Christ. Again, I think of the Israelites who forgot all the amazing miracles that they had witnessed God do for them and realize how easy it is for me to forget what God has done for me. I forget that I'm forgiven. I forget that God delights in me. I forget that I'm guaranteed a crown and a place at God's feast at the table. What about you? Do you forget these things? There must be other things as well. So I just say to my, my heart, praise the Lord, O oh my soul, and remember these things. He forgives all our iniquity. So it's no surprise that David starts here because it's the foundation of everything. Our greatest problem is 
the guilt we feel because of our sin. And our greatest need is to know the forgiveness of the Lord. Note that David says that God forgives, forgives all iniquity, and that's good news. Some of us have really blown it big time. And we've messed up over and over again. We've done the same stupid things repeatedly, even after promising we'd never do them again. I'm glad the word all is included because it means God intends to forgive not just my past sins, but all my future sins as well. And think about that. It's amazing. Most of us imagine that when we come to Christ, all our past sins are forgiven. But what about the sins you'll commit later today after church? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or tomorrow, or the next day. Consider this. It's huge. When Christ died, all of our sins were in the future. 2,000 years ago, he, he died for our sins. So all of our sins were in the future. And he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. When we come to Christ, all of our sins are forgiven, even our yet-to-be-committed sins. And some of those sins would shock us if we knew what they were right now. What a great God we serve. And what grace he pours out on our lives. He forgives all our sins, past, present, and future. It's a huge insight because it touches on how we see God and how God is. He's more than willing to forgive than we are to be forgiven. He's, easy, he's eager to forgive, he's ready to forgive, and he wants to forgive you. And he, he already has forgiven you. He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. That's verse 12 in Psalm 103. I love that. I love that concept. He has removed our sins as far as from the east is from the west. That's as far as possible. It's as far as we can imagine. And how far is that? There are points, these points are the most distant from each other. So far as removed our transgressions from us, he's put them entirely away. They are so far removed that they cannot affect us anymore. And more importantly, they cannot affect our relationship with him. Because usually that's the first thing that suffers when we feel guilty. Rather than going to God and asking forgiveness, we tend not to pray. We tend not to want to go to church. Instead of running to his arms and saying, Daddy, I screwed up or whatever. 
Romans 8 in the New Living Translation puts it this way. Verse 1. So now there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. In verse 3 it goes on to say, He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. John famously sums it up in John 3:15 through 17. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but that the world through him might be saved. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has removed our transgressions from us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you, Lord, that you are full of grace and that you lavishly pour out your love on us, Lord. That you've forgiven everything we've done in the past and you, will, you have forgiven everything that we will do in the future and that nothing can separate us from your love. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Praise the Lord. Let's just wait on the Lord for a, for a moment. And um, if there's anything that's been, you feel has been blocking you from God's love, anything that you feel um, has been getting in the way, anything you've been hesitant to bring to your daddy and ask forgiveness for, just quietly now, just, uh, just um, to yourself and, and, and your father, just bring it up and Lay it before him. Because he loves you. And just feel that burden lift and fly away as far as the east is from the west. <laughs>